We ask, Lord, that you would help us in this message. We pray, Father, that each one of us would have hearing ears that would hear something that we could take with us to edify us and to strengthen us to be more like your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 16, and I actually have a title that was drug out of me 10 minutes ago, Trusting God When Nothing Makes Sense. Trusting God when nothing makes sense. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now it always helps to have some context to what you're reading in the scripture these guys are at the height of Jesus' ministry. There, there's people being raised from the dead. Uh, Jesus is doing amazing things. He, he even heals mother-in-laws. Peter's mother-in-law got help one day. Proof in the, from the Bible, anybody can get help. They had things that happened to them that could you only imagine. Every day after supper, you'd sit home and you may talk with the disciples, with the group about the things that went on that day, where you may have saw a limb, where somebody had a limb that was half missing, maybe by accident, maybe by birth, and it grew back. Blind eyes were opened, the devils were cast out of people. Maybe somebody walked on water that day, or someone came out of the tomb, bound hand and foot with grave clothes. Every day, you would have at the end of the day, something like that to talk about. The Bible even says that Jesus, there were times... He had to sneak away to get a meal. He had to scurry himself where nobody knew where he was just to get a bite to eat to be left in some peace or privacy. And I don't blame anybody back there that was looking for him. I would have been there. Medical care was not the easiest thing in the world. And the Bible tells us that they went places where every single person was made whole. It's hard to wrap our minds around that. And in the middle of that, Jesus says this. We're going to go to Jerusalem someday, boys, and the elders, the chief priests, I'm going to be handed over to them, and they are going to kill me. And I'll, raise the, I'll be raised the third day. Now the next verse, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. So that verse right there tells us that at least Peter, who knows, maybe all of them, they understood something about the idea of what he just said, didn't they? Because, see, my mind goes to when he, when he did die, when he was crucified. Those disciples were not there with the written word saying, you know, he, he told us that on the third day he was coming out. There was none of them that were down there at the tomb waiting for that stone to roll away to have him come out. None of them. But see, right here, Peter, he obviously understood it went into the ears, and he comprehended that Jesus was talking about dying. Because he, this, he says, I'm not going to let that happen to you. Jesus has to rebuke Peter to say, this is the plan of God. You've got to get out of the way so that God's will can be done here. Let's go to Matthew 20, and there's even some more specifics that Jesus begins to give them. Matthew 20, verse 17. Matthew 20, verse 17, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them. So there's always people around. He takes them apart for a little bit of private meeting. 
Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, and to scourge, and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Now here he gets even a lot more specific, because previously he just said, he told them that when he goes to Jerusalem, he'll be handed over and, and he's going to die. Well, there's a million different ways to die. He could have been walking along a cliff somewhere and some rocks slip out from under his feet and over the edge he goes. He could have had the Pharisees, somebody try to poison him and, and succeed. There's a ton of different ways to die. Here, he tells them, he gives them very specifics that they'll condemn me to death. Now that word condemn implies... A trial. It, it, it implies that someone sits in judgment, hears witnesses, hears the facts, the case, and decides, yes, you're guilty and you deserve such and such. They'll deliver him to the Gentiles. We know on this side of the story that that means the Romans, the Roman rulers who ruled Jerusalem at this time. To mock, to scourge, that's very specific. It's hard for us to even talk in the specifics about scourging, leather pieces, uh, almost leather ropes, all, uh, many of them tied to one, one piece, and each of those leather things have glass, maybe bone, rock woven into it so that when it hits you, it actually pulls the flesh off of you. Jesus was scourged, comma, and to crucify. Now, they know, if they're listening, they know exactly how he's going to die. And he shall be raised the third day again. Now that's all the information they should need, isn't it? That's all the information that anybody would need if you really believe what Jesus said to have a pretty good understanding of how the week of what you and I call Easter would play out. In the Bible times, this was called the Passover. But yet we, we know how this ended. Go to Mark chapter 16. Matthew, then Mark, chapter 16. And this is, in this chapter, is the entire, most of the story of the resurrection. At the first part of chapter 16, the ladies go down with spices to anoint the body of Jesus. They discover that he is not there. The angel appears to them. And verse 9 says, Now when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them, Who are the them? The disciples. She goes to where they are, hiding. She went and told them that had been with him as they mourned, and wept. Picture that. The guys who had heard everything he said, and we know at least at one point they kind of understood it with Peter's reaction. Now there are other verses that tell us that when Jesus said that, that it was hid from their eyes. That they did not understand all of it, or at least that verse means it didn't register in there very long. Their mourning and their weeping. Verse 11, And they, the disciples, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, comma, 
believed not. Now, if you're not, if you just take more than a casual reading of the Bible, that's astonishing. If anybody on earth should have been ready to believe the report of these ladies, it should have been those disciples that got a public briefing, a private briefing on just how he would die, how it would all happen, and a very specific number on the third day he would rise again. Sometimes the Bible has time periods that are open-ended. It doesn't tell you to the day when something is going to happen. Jesus told them. And all of this happens. They come in panting out of breath. Their face had to have shown just the shock of seeing Jesus being resurrected. And when they tell them, these guys, no. They believe them not. I'm not here to pile on the disciples and try to make them out to be bad people. Not at all. That tells us a lot of just what they saw with their own eyes. See, nothing had made sense to them at this point. When you read your Bible, they, you find out that the disciples were asking Jesus, I mean, this guy, he's the Messiah that we're following. He, he's actually here in our life. And we know from the Old Testament, the Messiah is going to set up shop here. And he's going to kick out the infidels, the Gentiles. We're going to rule the Gentiles, this whole world. We're going to teach them how to follow God. Except, the disciples accepted him. The nation as a whole did not. And because of that, there was a pretty harsh, stiff penalty. But they reject Jesus. They crucify their Messiah. They, the disciples, were expecting he's going to set up his earthly throne right now. You can read that in the Bible even when he comes back after he's resurrected. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. They ask him, are you going to now restore the kingdom to Israel? In other words, are you going to put us in charge? They're going to be doing that at some point, but it wasn't going to happen then. I go through that to get in your mind what was in their mind. They could not imagine the guy they're following, who they know someday is going to be on that throne, couldn't imagine him being tortured, crucified, destroyed in such a manner. And yet he had told them on three days, I'll be back. And you talk about something that doesn't make sense. You can see by their reaction here. They are in bewilderment. Look at verse 12. After that, he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. We know that's Luke 24, the road to Emmaus. And they went, those two guys that he talked to, the disciples, and told it unto the residue, or the rest of them, comma, neither believed they them. Disciples' scorecard, their report card is starting to drop. Two more people, two of the guys that had been walking on the road to Emmaus with him, they come bursting in. He's alive. And they believed them not. Total bewilderment. Nothing in their world makes sense. And they have the spoken word of Jesus himself, what should be taking place. And it's going to... It's, coming out just as Jesus predicted it would. And they still can't follow the program in faith to be ready. Again, I'm not piling on. I think if I had seen what they saw with their eyes and the fear of those Roman soldiers could come after me because after all, we were carrying out his will. We were laying hands on people. We were doing what he told us to do. Maybe they would come after me. And their mind was filled with fear to the breaking point. 
Verse 14, afterward he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart. 21st century American, what does that word mean to you? Upbraided them. I have six daughters in my house and my wife. And this is not taking hair and going across until you get to the end and putting something in. It's not a braid. He upbraided them. We don't use that word. That's right. This was a disciplinary speech. Jesus got after them. For what? It says for their unbelief. What were they supposed to have believed? What he had told them. The very specifics. There wasn't really even any guessing. They should have known. We, we, don't, we don't read that. We don't think the story goes that way, do we? We just think he comes back, there's a big party, they have the punch and the lemonade, and he's back. It didn't start that way. He first upbraids them with their unbelief, hardness of heart, because they believe not them which had seen him even after he was risen. See, it's really, he's mad a little bit because you've got your own witnesses here. They're telling you. Not the Romans trying to draw you out of hiding. Not the Jews who are trying to smoke you out so they can put you on the end of a spear. No. Your own friends, some of the disciples came here and the women, and they told you I was risen, and they still didn't believe. Nothing had made sense to these guys. They were in bewilderment. And we're all that way at some point in our life. Thank goodness most of us don't have the circumstances as severe as this. Watching someone that you love and care for being tortured and killed in this way. But we all have times, things in our life where nothing makes sense. It feels that way anyway. Maybe the person sitting right next to you, your spouse, your best friend, your kids, maybe they're looking at you and they're wondering, why do you feel that way? It doesn't look so bad to me. But to you, it feels that way. What do we do in those times? Well, you can tell from the scriptures here what a person, a follower, should do. The most trusted thing that you have is this right here. The written, and in their case, they had the spoken word of Jesus given to them. And that's what he's upset about. You and I have everything written down before Jesus, during Jesus, and even what will come after The written word, that's right, the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said, he guides us into all truth. There's a reason that we, especially at this church, we we make a big deal about the inerrancy, the special nature of Scripture. It's more than just human history, which it is. All the real-life Indiana Joneses who are looking for things over in the Middle East, they start with this book, because when it comes down to it, you've got to trust your millions of dollars to it, the Bible doesn't lie. And God doesn't lie. We're going to go back in the Old Testament and look at a a couple of examples to try to just cement and hammer this home. Because what God says, you can count on. He means it. Let's go to Genesis chapter 5. Way back. Genesis chapter 5. And if there's ever a story that didn't make a whole lot of sense to the people that may have been in the middle of it? How about Noah building that ark? Genesis chapter 5, and we're going to start looking at 
verse 22. Now, this, is a, this entire chapter is a genealogy of people from Adam going down to Noah. And when you get the seventh person from Adam, there's this guy named Enoch. He turns out to be the great-grandfather of Noah. It says in verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he begat Methuselah 300 years and begat sons and daughters. Now what this tells us, Enoch was a, a follower of God. And we know in this time that the earth, it gets really bad. The corruption of mankind, it is terrible. But this one family, they must have, had it, they must have kept it together pretty well. Enoch was a great man. He's even mentioned in the New Testament, Jude tells us he prophesied. This guy was a teacher, a follower of God. And he had a son that he named Methuselah. Now, to really, really understand the Old Testament stories, you really have to look into the meaning of their names, really. God changed people's names to go along with what he had planned for them, the the paths he wanted them to take. We know he changed Abram's name to Abraham because it meant the father of many nations. When Enoch names his son Methuselah, when you break that word down, it, it has the, the, the root word of death. Anytime something dies in the Old Testament, this word, that meth, I think is the part. But Methuselah, you put all the meanings together and it implies that when he dies, something's going to happen. And Methuselah is named this by his father, and it tells us that right after that, right after he names his son, that he walks with God for 300 years. And then it tells us that he walked with God so close, he didn't even die. God took him bodily. He just went right to heaven. Now that paints a picture. There's no verse that just says it, but you start putting all those details together, and Enoch knew God very well. And he names his son something about when he dies, some, this big thing is going to happen. Starts to paint a picture. Enoch knew what was coming. Now it tells us in verse 25 that Methuselah lived 187 years and he had his son Lamech. Lamech's the father of Noah. He, had, he was 187. Look at verse 28, Lamech lived 182 years and he begat a son and they called his name Noah. Now, don't get scared. We're going to do two minutes of math. Methuselah was 187 years old and he had Lamech. Lamech lived 182 and he had Noah. So 187 plus the 182. How many is that from when Methuselah was born? 187 182, that's... Who said that? Reed, you got a calculator? Tina Reed, shock of the day. Three, and that, that's good. Three, we got a banker in here. He didn't say nothing. 369. So, 369 years from when Methuselah was born, Noah is born. Now, flip one page in your Bible, Genesis chapter 7, look at verse 6. Genesis 7, verse 6. How old was Noah when the flood came? 600. So, 369 from when Methuselah was born to when Noah is born. If you, from Noah, he is 600 years when the flood comes. So, from the birth of Methuselah, how many years? 
969. Now go back to Genesis 5. And look at verse 27. And all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. Now it does not say that he died drowning in the flood. It's not what it, it does not mean that. What this means is Enoch was given some information by God about his son Methuselah and he named him when he dies it's coming. And we just did the math. Your Bible lays everything out. 969 years from the day that kid is born, the flood comes, and it tells us before that flood even gets there that Methuselah was 969 years when he died. That means what happened the year Methuselah died. God's word was true. The flood came. I don't think it was just a total shock to Noah they probably worried every time Methuselah started coughing real bad. Or maybe he tripped and fell. Don't get too close to the cliff because when that guy dies, something's supposed to happen. But think about the things that might not have made much sense in the life of Noah. The Bible tells us it had never rained up to that point. The earth was watered through a mist, the Bible tells us. And yet God tells Noah, you start building this ark, buddy. Never even seen it rain? Well, it's going to rain. So much so that the entire earth is going to flood. The water under the earth, and we know what that's like. We live on the aquifer. There's scads of water underneath. And God told Noah, the great deeps are going to break up, and this sucker is going to drown. I'm cleansing the earth. Can you imagine building a boat in a place where it has never rained? And you're telling people as they ask, why is it so big? Why are you stacking hay in there and carrots for rabbits and those things? Well, all the animals are going to be coming. You talk about something that wouldn't make much sense. Very likely there were animals Noah had never seen before. But they started coming. What is it like to trust God when there is nothing that makes sense? You go back to, what has he told me? What? has he told me, because it will never fail. And especially if God has given a time constraint on when it will happen, when it has to happen, you watch that. And it will always come to pass. 969 years is a long time. You know how long that America, Europeans have been on this continent? Almost half of that. Half. 969 years and the flood never came until Methuselah passed away. God is pretty good at this stuff. Now, I think the best example in the Bible, let's go to Exodus, the next book, Exodus chapter 12. Because back there where we just were, after Noah gets off the boat, God goes really fast through human history. He just zips through all these different people. doesn't tell us anything about them. Only that they led to a guy named Abraham. And God gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. We're not taking the time to do it, but you go home if you want to. In Genesis 15, God tells Abraham, you, have, you and your wife have no kids, you're very old, and you can't have kids except... It's going to be a miracle. You're going to have a miracle kid because the, the promised seed is going to come through you two. 
And he gives him some more information. He said, at some point, your seed is going to go down and they're going to be strangers in a land that mistreats them. But he says, after 430 years, they'll come out. In the fourth generation, they'll come out with great substance and I will judge the nation that mistreats them. So you keep reading through your Bible and it goes through a lot of stories and you kind of forget that and you put it on the shelf. But when you get to Exodus chapter 12, his seed has been in Egypt for a long time. Long time. Hundreds of years. And in Moses, we know, is the primary character in this story. Moses is raised in the, by a miracle, he's raised in the Pharaoh's court. He strikes dead someone one day and he's scared. He flees for his life and he goes out into the wilderness while he's at 40 years of age. And at the end of another 40 years, when he's 80, the bush starts burning and God talks to him and says, Moses, go back to Egypt and get those people out. Remarkable. One stuttering guy, go talk to Pharaoh. And he does it. He goes and by the hand of Moses, God works miracle after miracle after miracle to bring those people out. And the thing that always gets me about that story, there was a promise from God in Genesis 15 how long they'd be there. And if anybody, I don't think anybody did, but if had anybody been keeping a calendar and marking that time off to know when it was coming, the closer it got, the time the closer the time got to when they were supposed to leave and be free, their circumstances got worse. It looked worse every day. When Moses goes back and complains to Pharaoh and says, you better let him go, what does Pharaoh do? He says, you guys are going to stand around here and talk to me about leaving, then you go get your own straw. He doubles, he makes their tasks more difficult. They get more beatings. Their, what is required of them in work goes up. They're not getting closer to freedom. Have you ever felt like that in your life? Of course. We all do. It's a true saying that, at least figuratively in life, the sunrise, the night is always the darkest just before the sun comes up. For one reason, you've been in it longest. And the longer you're in it and you can't see, you kind of start getting used to the darkness a little bit. But the darkness never treats you very well. The unbelief that those disciples were in when Jesus was still in the tomb and just when he had been resurrected, how did it, how did it describe those disciples? What was their life like? It uses these words. They were weeping, they were mourning, and they were in great fear. Anytime we disbelieve God, we allow unbelief to think, well, I'm sure that happened to somebody else, but God can't do that for me. Yeah, he, he healed their marriage, but he can't do it for me. Or He helped them with that problem, but that's just for them. God, he'll never do something like that for me. That type of unbelief, you know where that leads? Depression, fear, anxiety. Always. And the exact opposite, you read about these people like Noah... Like Moses who goes back to Pharaoh and commands, let these people... He didn't really ask. He's one guy with a staff. And he tells Pharaoh, let these people go. And Pharaoh, of course, laughs at him for the first ten plagues. And Moses at one point tells him, we're not leaving here until every 
single cow, sheep, goat of ours goes with us. You're not going to send us out with empty-handed and we leave our possessions behind. No, sir. At one time he tells him, we're not leaving a hoof behind. Now, I wrote in my Bible behind that that's guts. That's one guy, his staff, and God on his side, and that's all he's got. But he had something else. He had belief. That that burning bush, that that actually was God talking to me, and as long as he goes with me, there's nothing we can't do. Standing in front of Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 12, look at verse 40. Yes, verse 40 and 41. Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt was 430 years. And it came to pass at the end of 430 years, comma, even the self-same day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Pity wampus. I, any new Bible I get, that thing gets underlined. To the day. God made sure to keep his promise that an entire nation, you know how hard that is? It's one, you can get one pardon and you get one jail cell opened. To get three million people out of slavery, you know what you have to go through? The self-same day that it was supposed to come to pass, out they go. God keeps his word. And remember, leading up to that, was it getting better or worse? Could they hit their neighbor in the shoulder and say, see, look, it's getting better. We're almost out of here. Just hold on. No. It was getting worse. It was getting more worser. Every day, something horrible was happening to them. Until, clock on God's desk hits 430 years, and out they go. Go back to Exodus chapter 7, and there is an interesting, very interesting piece of information here about this guy Pharaoh. Exodus chapter 7 and verse 3. This is when God is still talking to Moses out in the wilderness. Moses hasn't went back yet. And God is explaining to Moses what's going to happen when he goes back to Egypt. Exodus 7, verse 3. I, God, I will harden, harden Pharaoh's heart. I thought he was going to make it easier. I thought he wanted to get his people out of there. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. What did God harden Pharaoh's heart for? Why did he do it? He wanted Pharaoh to make a big scene that no way you're not going. He wanted to show his people that even if the most powerful government on earth said, no, you can't go, it didn't matter. God intentionally made Pharaoh with a hard heart so that the people could look and see God multiply, as it says there, his signs and his wonders. All the water turned to blood. The plague of the locusts, the plagues of the flies, the frogs, the darkness, it raining down fire. These people saw all this stuff. Do you think they were a little more inclined to follow God at the end of those ten plagues? I sure do. More so than just some old guy showing up out of the wilderness with a long beard saying, follow me. Yeah. When he says, that guy with the long beard and the staff says, let the waters turn to blood and it happened, they were a little more willing to follow the weird-looking guy. 
Verse 4, But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that I may lay my hand upon Egypt, and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. That's what he had promised Abraham, that I'll judge the nation that does this. Now what is the application for us in verse 3 and 4 there? You may be in the middle of something that makes no sense to you, none. You can't see God working in it at all, and it's not fun. But you have a promise. Maybe you've been giving a promise once when you were in prayer years ago and you felt just God open your heart and lay something in there. You could feel it coming in. And God gave you a promise about something you've been praying for, that it would happen. And yet, you never seem like you're getting closer to it, ever. And sometimes, like this story, Pharaoh gets hardened. And the circumstances don't change in your favor. Why does God do that? Verse 5 says, And the Egyptians shall know what? The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. You know, sometimes your circumstances will get horrible so that when you come out, every person around you recognizes, Good Lord, how did God do that for you? The bigger the circumstances, the more people that see it, God uses that sometimes. I'm not here to tell you that everything wrong in your life, God is turning up the heat and trying to make it worse. I'm not saying that. I am saying that it's possible. That sometimes God allows things to really bank up, to get really bad for one purpose. So that the people sitting in the chair next to you, the people that see you at work, know that when you came out of it, I know she couldn't do it. I know there's nothing he really did. That was God that did that. See, these Egyptians, that's a word for unbeliever. They're pagans. And even the pagans, the unbelievers, knew what? We're not going to mess with their God anymore. They were a lot more inclined to think toward the Israelites' God, Sir, you can have your way. I think I'll just back off today. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. We're human beings, and we go through things on this earth. Some things aren't fun, some things are. And without a doubt, if you're over 30 years old, you're going to go through something that doesn't make much sense. Because there are difficulties in life, and there are there's disappointments. There's things that make us wonder how much of this is worth it? What if I would have just made a turn back where so-and-so's house? God can turn things in such a way like for these Israelites, 430 years, and on the exact day that it was due to happen, they're out into freedom. Now that's not a small difference. They were slaves being beaten, being starved, their children being drowned in the river. From that total freedom. Masters of their own destiny if they follow God in that wilderness. What do you do when nothing makes sense? If those Israelites, if they would have had somebody up in front to encourage them, they should have been opening their book of Genesis and read, God told Abraham, we'd only be here 430 years. It's going to happen in our day. We're the ones that are getting out of here. Because God keeps His promises.
Father, we pray, Lord, that each person here, that they would be strengthened, that they would be encouraged in your word. And Lord, I pray over every person of the sound of the, our voice and, and somebody that may be listening by tape, Lord, that you would show them what you have for their life. Give them an encouragement that, they would, that you would help them to walk one more mile with you, to keep going, to pressing on from faith unto faith. And we pray, Lord, that you would help each one of us to keep going and keep going until we reach your finish line. In Jesus' name, amen.